You are listening to a message from Sound Words. To find information about our ministry, please visit our website at soundwords.org. You can also download our free app from iTunes or Google Play to access more great sermons. We've started a study of the book of 1 Corinthians, and let me uh, recommend a book to you. It's an older work, 50 years or so, by Earl Rodmacher on the church, the nature of the church. But we have it down in sound words in hardback and softback. And it is a good foundational uh, work on the doctrine of the church. Earl Rodmacher was president of Western Conservative Baptist Seminary for a number of years. So I recommend that to you. I was reminded of it because in my notes, I have a number of uh, references from it and reminded of it being a good foundational work. We're just in the opening three verses of uh, Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians. So let me read those to you. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes this letter as an apostle. And let me just review the three basic qualifications of an apostle with you. A reminder that they were a unique group of men selected and appointed by Christ. And then the apostle Paul joined that select group. They became key in the writing of our New Testament. So first qualification for an apostle was that he was an eyewitness of the resurrection. Basic, simple truth. He had to have seen Jesus Christ after his resurrection from the dead. You can back up to Acts chapter 1, if you would like. Acts chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 22. Verse 21, they're looking for a replacement for Judas. To keep the number 12. Then Paul will be the 13th apostle. But verse 21 for the sentence. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us. All the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Beginning with the baptism of John. Until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness of his resurrection. So they follow through. And Matthias is added to the 11 to make 12 again. And Paul will be the 13th apostle. So he had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. The apostle Paul says that he was an eyewitness. You can come back to 1 Corinthians if you like in your Bible. Chapter 9. Remember, Paul is saved in Acts chapter 9. And he does have a confrontation with the resurrected Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? 
Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? So have I not seen Jesus our Lord in First Corinthians chapter 15? First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8. Again, Paul is defending his apostleship and he talks about the appearances of Christ. Verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins. According to scripture, he was buried. He was raised on the third day. He appeared to Kephas, then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Most of those remain, but some have died, fallen asleep. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So the last of the appearances of Christ are to the Apostle Paul. Now, he appeared to 500 brethren at once. Not everyone who saw Christ after his resurrection was an apostle. But a requirement for an apostle was you had to be one of those who saw Christ after his resurrection from the dead. And Paul marks himself off here as a unique and special case. So, first qualification of an apostle. These are important because there are certain groups today particularly in the charismatic movement, who think apostleship is still a gift for today. And that creates all kinds of problems. So the first qualification is you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. And Paul says, they last of all appeared to me. So I'm sort of one untimely born, as he put it. I'm unique and that he appeared to me in a special way on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. Secondly, the ministry of an apostle was validated by miracles. His ministry was validated by miracles. Over in 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles. And that is Paul arguing again that he is a genuine apostle. Verse 11, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you. Signs, wonders, and miracles. The Apostle Paul did those. They demonstrated that he was a true apostle. And thirdly, he was the recipient of revelation from God. He received direct revelation from God. That's the third qualification there. It'll come up in a moment. Back up to Galatians. If you're still in 2 Corinthians just a page or so over. Galatians chapter 1, verse 12. For the gospel, verse 11, which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul claims again, his apostleship, I received direct revelation from God. I didn't learn the gospel from men. I learned it from a special revelation from God. Here in Galatians, just turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. Paul, again, 
developing his apostleship. And he says in verse 3 that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. Mystery was something you could not understand. It took direct revelation from God. There is new revelation given through the Apostle Paul. This is why we want to be careful that we put all these together because those who claim to be apostles today have the gift of apostleship. I have books written in my library by those who claim the gift of apostleship is present. Then they claim that God speaks to them. And so it's consistent with the word of God, but it's new revelation from God. It's not. The Apostle Paul In chapter 3 of Ephesians is arguing by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote in brief. By referring to this when you read you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. So the gift of apostle involved the receiving of direct revelation from God. You can read the rest of chapter 3. There are other passages, but those passages at least establish when Paul starts out his letter coming back to the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. God had directly intervened in Paul's life and set him apart, called him not only to salvation, but to be an apostle, one sent with a special message from God to carry on a special ministry from God. That establishes somewhat, again, just a reminder that uh, the gift of apostleship is not present today. It's not present after the apostle Paul. Now, there's revelation given after the apostle Paul, the apostle John wrote the gospel of John, but he also wrote the book of Revelation and Paul's been dead for 30 years, but he is an apostle. There may be non-apostles who receive direct revelation, but they have to also fit into the rest of the deeds of an apostle or the eyewitness of the resurrection. Luke might be an exception, but by and large, the apostleship gift is unique to the New Testament times, closing with the Apostle Paul. Okay, let's look on a little bit further. He's writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. All these refer to the same group, but he identifies them in several ways. It's the church of God, which is at Corinth. It's to those who have been sanctified, There are saints. They're joined with those who call upon the name of the Lord. So the church is a unique group. And let me just review with you a little bit about the church in the New Testament. Just foundational truths that we want to be sure that we refresh our minds with regularly. Several things noted about the church. Number one, it's translation of a word You may have it in the margin of your Bible, ecclesia. Don't have it here in 1 Corinthians in uh, the New American Standard. Ecclesia. It's ek, which is the Greek preposition for out, and kaleo, which is the verb to call. It's a called out group. But be careful what you do with that. 
It was originally used in secular Greek of the citizens, the Greek citizens of a Greek city. It could be used of any kind of assembly, even a disorderly group. It's used that way in the New Testament. Come over to the book of Acts. So just before the book of Romans, the book of Acts, chapter 19. And we're just looking at the word translated church in the New Testament. It does describe a unique group, but it's not based on just the word that's used, ecclesia, a called out group, because it's used in Acts chapter 19. I just pulled this out as an example. I look at verse 32. So then some were shouting one thing and some another for the assembly. And you have, if you're using a New American Standard Bible, a little number one in front of assembly. And if you go to number 32 in the margin, it's ecclesia. Well, that's the word for church. So we could have translated this for the church was in confusion. We said, well, wait a minute. That's not talking about the church because these are unbelievers in a mixed multitude who are, you know, claiming their uh, allegiance and worship of a Greek goddess. But it's called the church. They're called out group. It just came to mean an assembly in Greek. You're still in Acts 19. Look at verse 39. But if you want to do anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. The lawful assembly. The assembly that meant the rules. The regular assembly. The regular church. But again, we wouldn't use the word church. And the Greek word is the called out group. Then it's used again in verse 41 of chapter 19. After this, he dismissed the assembly, the church. I just want to use Acts 19 as an example that the word church can be used of any special group of people. Here he's referring to the citizens of this city, the Greek citizens and their conduct. So the word translated church, but it's ecclesia. It's just a group called together, an assembly of citizens. Number two, it was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and here's where some confusion comes in. It was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. We abbreviated LXX, the 70, but refer to the Septuagint, which referred to Israel at times. However, this doesn't mean the church as we talk about it in Paul's letters, for example, because it didn't exist in the Old Testament. But just so you know, it's used for the Hebrew word. You don't need it. It's kahal, transliterated over Q-A-H-A-L. But it sometimes translates that word in the Old Testament because it just meant an assembly. So when you read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you would read about the church. It wouldn't be necessarily translated to church, but it's the same word. It's the called out assembly. It's the group. So it's used in the Septuagint that way. Number three, it was used before even Israel came into existence. It's used in the book of Job, chapter 30, verse 28. Job says, I stand up in the assembly and cry out for help. Well, even if you're going to say it referred to the Jews, 
Job is usually identified maybe in the time of Abraham, but the development of Abraham's descendants into the nation Israel, that doesn't even happen until the captivity in Egypt, but even in the line of Abraham, no indication that Job was part of that. David wrote in Psalm 26, verse 5, I hate the assembly of evildoers. But that's the translation in the Greek of the Greek word church. I hate the church of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. Wait, wait, that doesn't fit. I'm belaboring this because some who want to just blend the church and Israel say, well, Israel was called the church. Well, groups of wicked people were called the church. It was an assembly. So... A point four on my notes, by New Testament times, the work at Ecclesia had a history of being used both in secular Greek and the Septuagint to refer to an assembly. You have to determine what kind of assembly are we talking about. Is this a special assembly? In point five in my list, in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will build my church, my assembly. The emphasis there is not particularly on the word church, the called out group. Sometimes we begin to develop a specialized meaning. It does take on a specialized meaning. But it's Jesus talking about what? I will build my church, my assembly, my called out group. So the emphasis there is on the word my. It distinguishes it from what Israel, when it was called God's assembly, or other uses, the assembly of the wicked, as we saw it in the Old Testament. So it comes to mean the church, but Jesus is going to build his unique group, and we will call it the church, the called out group, the assembly, as we've carried it over, it is now called the church. But you want to understand that Greek word is used in other contexts of other meanings. If you're going to make it mean everything the same, then you're going to have problems. I mention this because there are those who think that the church is Israel and replaces Israel, and Israel's called the church in the Old Testament. Well, there's an element of truth. The same word is used at times, the called out assembly, but it doesn't mean church in the sense that we're talking about it. Uh, The church, as Jesus said, I will build my assembly, my church, begins in Acts chapter 2 and continues down to today and will continue until the rapture. And with this, let me say that the church is not the kingdom. We're not building the kingdom today. That's a different word. The kingdom will not come into existence until Jesus Christ returns to earth and establishes it. The church will have part of the kingdom, a part in the kingdom. But the church is not the kingdom. The kingdom is established by Christ in his rule and reign. Just turn back to Matthew. We could look at some Old Testament passages in Isaiah, but we won't take time for that. But Isaiah chapter, or Matthew chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. 
But when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now we're going to have the kingdom. It's when Christ returns in his glory and sits on his glorious throne. That marks the beginning of the kingdom. That's the second coming of Christ to earth. Some seven years or so after the rapture of the church, the removal of the church, the completion of God's program with Israel in the 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year tribulation, Revelation chapter 6 to 19, Christ returns and is seated on his glorious throne. Then verse 34, if you're still in Matthew 25, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed in my father, inherit the kingdom. Now people will go into the kingdom. Christ has established it. The Jews in particular, it's the kingdom for them. We will be part of ruling and reigning with Christ, but the Jews will be the focal point on the earth. An eighth point that I have, I don't know if you're keeping track of these points, but the church belongs to God. And we have that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Paul's writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth. That's important. It's the church of God, which is at Corinth. It's God's church. It is purchased by him with the blood of Christ. That makes it his. And... Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. It's his church because he purchased it. It's his church because he purchased it for himself and he appoints the rulers to rule over his church. So he made you overseers. He's speaking to the elders of the church. At Ephesus, as he met with them uh, at a nearby town, Miletus, as he's on his way back to Jerusalem, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Well, it was purchased by Christ, but Christ is a member of the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are joined in the work of redemption. He purchased it with his own blood, the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Death on the cross purchased the church. So God appoints the leaders. And finally, a ninth point as I have it is there's a universal dimension to the church as well as a local. And we keep wanting to blend them in a way that's confusing. There's a universal dimension to the church. The church is comprised of every believer in Jesus Christ from Acts chapter 2 down until the rapture. That's run some 2,000 years or so. Everybody, a member of the church. But individual churches, each one are representative and stand independent of themselves. That doesn't mean we can't learn from other believers and we do learn and so on. But the local church is a manifestation of the universal church. We'll get into that in Ephesians chapter one. When Paul will tell the Corinthians, you have all the gifts you need. To function as God intends you to function. So the local church is a manifestation. We uh, look at the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3. But each one is dealt with and evaluated independently of the others. 
Here's the good things I have to say about your church. That one of them is Ephesus. Here's the things that you need to straighten out. Well, it's not like, well, I'm writing to all, all the churches in Asia Minor. God could do that. He wrote to the churches of Galatia, churches plural, in maybe different regions of Galatia. But each church in that region is to be a manifestation of what God is doing in the world today in and through the church. Okay, now we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we are writing to the church of God. It's the church that belongs to God. It's the church that is God's. It's the church that belongs to God that is located at Corinth. So that's the universal church. And the function is manifest in the ministry of the local church. So every believer from Acts chapter 2 down to today has been a member of the church. But that doesn't mean the local church is just part of the blended whole. It is each one independently operating. There's no indication of a hierarchical structure like Roman Catholicism is built into their system. For example, using the Revelation 2 and 3 just for time, there are seven churches in Asia Minor, but each one is evaluated individually. Their strengths and weaknesses, they're condemned for things that need to be straightened out. They are commended for things that they're doing right. But it doesn't say now, this church ought to get this church straightened out. This church ought to, each church stands on its own and is individually judged on its own. So that's an important reminder. Our local church is to be a manifestation of the church in the world today. It's not the only manifestation, but it is to be one real, genuine manifestation of the church in the world today. That's why we spend our time studying the Bible, looking into what the Bible says about the church, because it's the church of God, which is in Lincoln. Now, some try to say, well, then, see, it ought to be just all the churches in that town comprise the one church. We are identified with other believing churches in town, but we stand or fall on our own, just like the seven churches of Asia Minor. They all were in the same region, but they stand or fall independently. The church of Laodicea, the last church identified, you either get it right or I'll come and remove your lampstand. Now, that doesn't mean he'll remove the lampstand of the church at Ephesus. Each church stands or falls as an independent entity. And let me just say something more about the word ecclesia, translated church. It's used, and if you get Rodmacher's book, he will go through this stuff. It's used 114 times, the word ecclesia, in the New Testament. At least 90 of those times refer to local churches. So at least 90 There may be a few that, well, I don't know for sure whether, but 90 out of 114, that's quite a dominant emphasis on the local church and its responsibility. So Paul is writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth, that local city. And they probably didn't have more than one church at this time. 
Paul's traveling in these Gentile cities, establishing churches. We noted when we, uh, in our previous study, he didn't start it. No evidence he started one in Athens. Doesn't mean in later history there wasn't a church in Athens, but in Paul's day there wasn't. He didn't start one. There may have been a few believers, but evidently not enough to call it a church. He moved on. But he did start one in Philippi. And we have him writing a letter to the Philippians. He did start one in Thessalonica, and he wrote a couple of letters back to the church at Thessalonica. But that doesn't mean that there's only one church in a city. As the church grows, then there may be more than one. With the passing of time, we have different views of Scripture, different interpretations of Scripture, which give different... But we come back to the Scripture And each local church, to the best of our ability, we have to be biblical. We have to be biblical. It doesn't matter what other churches are. We can learn. Maybe we get more insight into a passage of Scripture. But ultimately, we stand or fall before the Lord as a local church. Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. The word sanctified. And we got the same word. We're going to have the word saints, which is just basically the same basic word, the different ending. It's not a verb when it's translated saints, but and holy. Sanctified saints and holy all come from the same basic Greek word, hagios. Different endings and form of it, but those who have been sanctified, set apart, And this is a form here is a perfect passive participle, which just listen. (laughs) It's a perfect passive participle. And basically perfect tense refers to something that happened in the past and the results continue in the present. So they have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart. That's the root meaning of the word. So someone holy is someone set apart from sin to God. A saint is someone set apart to God. Someone sanctified is someone set apart to God. So we don't get the same feeling or sense of it's the same word as you would if you were reading it in Greek. And it's basically coming from the same Greek word with a different ending to simplify it. But sanctified, saint, holy came from the same word. So sanctified in Christ Jesus They've been set apart in Christ to God. That's God's sovereign work. As we'll see in a moment, they're saints by calling. So they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Come over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you. We're saints by calling. We are sanctified. We are saints by calling. Holy. Saint is one who is holy. But that's not a special different kind of person than every believer. It's the church of Jesus Christ who has been sanctified in Christ Jesus, who are saints by calling. If you're not a saint, that means you haven't been sanctified by God. 
which means you haven't believed in Christ and become his child. You're not part of the church. You may attend a church, but you're not part of it. We are part of it because we have the same faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work. And then it brings the sovereign work of God in setting us apart in salvation for Christ. We'll look at a couple of references further in a moment. But look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to your former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's true for God's people from day one, Adam and Eve. But then it was true for Israel as the nation God had chosen for himself. He said, you shall be holy. And you have your margin if you're using New American Standard, Leviticus chapter 11 and so on. That uniqueness. We have been set apart by God. We are to live as those who have been set apart for God. So sanctified and saints, we're referring to the same people, those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. We are saints by calling. We are those who have been sanctified by calling. Now, we have a noun and a verb, but we have the same basic word. Those who have been set apart by God for himself, and we translate it holy in other passages, like we have in First Peter chapter 1, verse 15, you shall be holy. What's well, the same basic word? Form of hagios, hagiazo. It's to be holy, holy one. That's what we are. You shall be holy for I am holy. Come back to First Corinthians chapter 1. And you can jump down to verse 30 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification. There's our word again. You know, it happened to us in Christ Jesus. We have been sanctified. We have become holy, set apart from sin for God. That's what we are. We are saints. We are those who have been sanctified by God in Christ Jesus. And that happened to us in Christ Jesus. Verse 30 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. But this doing you are in Christ Jesus. And being in Christ Jesus, we partake of his character. So he's wisdom from God. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that everyone who boasts, boasts in the Lord. I don't boast in the, well, I am more holy than you are. I am more holy than the person who has never believed in Christ. Well, that should be true. But that's not a reason for boasting because I have become holy in Christ and my identification with him and his character has been, if you will, transferred to me so that I have become in him what I could not be outside of him. One other passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And he talks about what you were before in the context here, beginning in verse 9. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You know, the kingdom of God is yet future. 
but we will share in that kingdom. But it's not existing now. We will inherit it. But it's not here yet. And then he goes on to say what? Such were some of you. Some were fornicators, some adulterers, some thieves, some covetous. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were, there's our word again, sanctified. Set apart from sin for God's use. You were sanctified. You were justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So you have all three persons involved here with God working to set us apart in Christ, in the spirit. We look at different aspects of it. There's other passages that emphasize the fact sanctified is set apart. A saint is someone set apart. Someone holy is someone set apart, set apart from sin for God. So back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you're a member of the church, that doesn't mean you attend a church. Why formally joined? That doesn't make you a member. You identifying with the group, but you have to place your faith in Christ because he's writing to the church was according to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart by God in Christ. So you had to have believed in Christ or you're not in him. You're a saint by calling, by the supernatural call of God. I'm writing to you and you're joined with everyone else. So we have the local church and we have the universal church with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So we have both the universal church and the local church. I'm writing to the local church, but you're part of all believing churches, but he's going to write to the church at Corinth and lay out things. Now the church, another church can read that letter and Prophet, and here we are 2,000 years later studying 1 Corinthians because we're part of that church. But we also stand or fall according to the description of it. Who in every place call on the name of our Lord. We're saints by calling. The call of God for us results in us calling upon God. It's saints by calling with all who every place call on the name. So we're identified with those who claim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's the point. We are joined with other believers. We may not be functioning with them, the coordination, but we recognize and we have interaction. Some of you get together with believers from other churches for various things. You have a common bond together. Come back to Romans chapter 10, just before Corinthians. So this is an easy reference. Romans chapter 10. And we're going to look at verse 12 and following. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For... And he quotes from Joel, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we enter into salvation, even though we are unique in that. We are not the nation Israel. The nation Israel is not the church. 
But there is salvation provided both for Jew and Gentile. Today, we are joined in the church. The Old Testament, they were joined to Israel. Paul is elaborating here on uh, verse 10. Whoever, for with a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth, he confesses. Verse 11, for whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all, abounding in riches for all. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Lord, who has believed our report? Verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, the truth concerning Christ, the message concerning him. So Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, but he's writing, you're part of the body of Christ. So this letter can be passed on and passed on and passed on because what he says to the church at Corinth will be applicable down through history. There'll be things that maybe the church at Corinth is doing things that we're not doing, but we're not doing things that the church at Corinth was doing. But we learn so the Spirit of God directed, so we have our entire New Testament that is put together. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 says this. Just listen. You can look it up later. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The calling is a result of the believing. And the result of believing is the transformation of us within. So we join with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There may be distinctions, and we have different churches today, but basic foundational is their faith in Christ and him alone. Or is their faith in the church? No, wait a minute. The church is a result of faith in Christ. But joining a church doesn't make you a believer. And this is where the church progressively gets weaker and weaker because we just sort of expand and contract. We contract on the good doctrine and we expand on our general idea. We believe in Christ. Will you talk to the average Protestant, the average Catholic, ask them this afternoon, you bump into and say, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Of course. I'm Roman Catholic. I go to the Methodist church. My parents went to the Methodist church. I was baptized as a baby in a Methodist church. But I wasn't saved. My parents weren't saved. They were 30 years old before they were saved. But they went through the ritual. So they were part of a church, generally speaking, but not the church that the New Testament's talking about. So back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. We are saints by calling. And those who call on the Lord are sanctified. And you have that development in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 17. With all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. There's only one Lord. So there can be many people who claim to be part of the church. But 
Do you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? He's their Lord and ours. But keep backing up. Those who are saints by calling. Those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Those are those who are really part of the church was at Corinth. Now, if you haven't been sanctified by faith in Christ and you aren't living, remember, flee from youthful lust, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart, a heart that's been transformed. That doesn't mean my life in every way conforms and I'm a perfect person. But that's my goal. That's my desire to be more and more like him every day, every week. And identify. I meet people that used to attend in the old that attend other Bible-believing churches. Fine, we can have conversation. We can stay together. They may have adjusted some of their teaching. Well, we'd have a hard time being together because we're premillennial, pre-tribulational, and you're amillennial, no millennial. But glad you're in the Word, growing with the Lord, and hope you'll come around again. We'll leave it there. Their Lord and ours. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Now, in the Old Testament, you identified with Israel. In the making of the church, it's Jew and Gentile alike. So it's whoever is a believer in Jesus Christ and truly manifesting. They've been sanctified. They're saints by calling. They call on the name of the Lord. Then welcome. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we get. We have God's grace, God's peace. This is where we get the mixture with the world and the church and pretty soon the church is no longer talking about it. We get peace with God. And when we have peace with God, we have the peace of God. Well, you know, we need to bring in what the world has found. We want to be careful. This demonstrates that we are saints. That doesn't mean that life is always peaceful. Because there's turmoil, there's tribulation, there's trouble, there's trials in being a believer. Paul, he's going to end up being executed for being a believer. But yet, there's a peace that comes through it. A peace that surpasses understanding. That's what makes up the church at Corinth. He's going to go into verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ. So he picks that up from verse 3. Grace to you and peace. I'm talking about the grace you've experienced. I want that grace to be multiplied and added to you. It's the grace of God. And we all come to situations where, Lord, it's just your grace. I just have to depend on your grace. You're sufficient for me. That's why troubles and trials are good for us because they remind us of our inability, our instability, and we come to trust him. All right, let me walk through just a few points here in conclusion. Number one, the local church is the physical manifestation of the church of God in a specific place. And this will be a repeat of some of the things we noted to begin with. The local church is the physical manifestation of the church of God in a specific place. That's what we are. And we can talk about the church of God in, around the world from Acts chapter 2. But we are to be the manifestation of the church of God in this place. 
doesn't mean we're the only church in this city. But we are to be, to the best of our ability, conformed to the word of God. Number two, it is made up of those who have been set apart in Christ to belong to God. That's what it means to be part of the church. Now, you formally can join a church here. It's if you attend here and claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ, we consider you a member. We have those who cannot attend. They're still members. They're home. They're maybe watching it on the Internet. For one reason, problem, or another, they're not able to be here. They're part of the church, though. So they belong here. They identify with us. Now, those who, well, I claim, yeah, I go to Indian Hills. Well, I go every other month or when it's convenient. I don't know. The Bible does say, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. So if you're not home because, well, I have a physical problem, I'm taking care of someone with a physical problem, some such, just, well, it's just easier to prop up my feet and stay home. Well, then it begins to wonder. The Bible says you don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. That's Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, hmm, I have to think about that. Are they really believers? No. Maybe they are. God knows, but we don't deal with them as believers because they're not here. Now, I realize pretty soon, you know, we don't have Sunday night. Less and less people come Sunday night. Then pretty soon, well, go three out of four Sundays, then I go two out of four, then one out of four. Well, maybe we're sifting out those who are true believers and those who aren't. I don't know. God knows. It's made up of those who have been set apart in Christ to belong to God. Point three, the members of the church are saints by virtue of his call. You can put down 2 Timothy 2.10 in addition to what we have here. They're saints by calling. It's God's choice. It is God's initiative that has resulted in my salvation, that has resulted in your salvation. Number four, all who call on the name of the Lord become part of the church. And we've elaborated that. All who call upon the name of the Lord become part of the church. Paul's writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Oh, I live in Corinth, but I don't go, but I'm a believer. Wait a minute. What do you mean? You're not part of the church, but you're a believer. If you're a believer, you're part of the church. If you're part of the church, you're supposed to belong. You're not to forsake the assembling of yourself together. Now, again, there's physical issues, but you understand the point. Number five, all who call upon the name of the Lord come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We didn't elaborate this, but it'll come out as we go through Corinthians who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the sovereign. He's the one I bow to. I am constantly making adjustments. As I grow in the Lord, I know more about the word of the Lord. I conform my life more to the Lord by the strength and enablement he gives. So all who call on the name of the Lord come under the Lordship of Christ. I realize a lot of people, yeah, he's the Lord but they're not living in any way, in a way conforms to the word of God, to the word of the Lord. But they claim that he is their Lord, but I just don't do what he tells me. 
it's going to be decided by him. And point six, the father and the son provide grace and peace to those who belong to him. That's our last verse. Grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always work complete and perfect harmony. And they provide the grace. They provide peace. And it comes from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. People, well, I believe in God, you know, generally. No, you have to understand the gospel. You have to understand something of the person of Christ. You don't understand the fullness of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but I don't deny it. And now that I've placed my faith in him, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I believe that God the Father is God the Father, and I believe that God the Spirit is God the Spirit. Can I explain all that and all the details? No, but I'm growing. I can more than I used to, but not as much as I will. Romans 10. Let me just read the verses and then we'll have a word of prayer. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's Romans 10 verses 12 and 13, basically. That's where we are. So now we're ready to move in more toward the letter itself. But he's introduced. We want to know what the church is. What marvelous thing God has done in our lives as his people. And now we're privileged to live for him, to serve him, to grow in our relationship to him. And we will never exhaust the knowledge of him because he is the infinite God who has created us all. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the riches of your word. Thank you that it is a complete word. It's everything that we are required to know, that we are required to submit to and allow the Spirit of God to conform us to. Thank you for bringing us together as a local church. Pray that we'll be a church founded on your word. It's built on the word that is in the word that is growing Lord, may we be involved in one another's gifts as we'll see even in 1 Corinthians. Each benefiting from the gifts that you've given to others and others benefiting from the gifts you've given to us. Lord, in all things, we want to be honoring you, being a testimony of the power of your saving grace that has made us new in Christ, that has set us apart for yourself and a testimony to that saving grace commit ourselves to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Sound Words, a ministry of Indian Hills Community Church. Make sure to download our app from iTunes or Google Play for more messages like the one you just heard. If you would like to contact us, please email soundwords at ihcc.org or give us a call at 402-483-4541.